Well, good evening. Good to see you guys. Good to be with you. Um, we, we take a break. Uh, if you haven't been to Wednesday night community before, we kind of run in semesters like the schools do. So we have a kind of a spring semester, we take summer off, and then a fall semester. And um, it's a time of uh, worship. Um, we take communion at the end. But this time is um, unique in the sense that what we do is we're very intentional about kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive into scripture. Uh, we, it's a study, and so we want to give our attention to that. We want to be better readers of Scripture, and so that's one of our goals is we want to explore those areas of the Bible that will enable us to be better students of Scripture and ultimately to understand our God better. So I, I'm so grateful that, that you guys are here for that. Hey, if you picked up a bulletin, if you didn't, you might want to grab one. We're going to be um, there in the back. We're going to be using um, some of the content here. But just to draw your attention real quickly to the back, um, we have some classes coming up. There's a grandparenting class that if you're a grandparent, boy, being intentional about grandparenting, it's huge. I know that with my own kids. Um, financial Peace University class. And then finally, there's a Sunday morning class called Biblical Citizenship that you might find interesting. It's a kind of a biblical exploration of what does it mean to be citizens in this nation. So you might find some of that interesting. Um, <clears throat> I want to start by showing you something. When I was about, I don't know, four or five years old, my mom made me this quilt, and it looks like it's about 45 years old. It's, it's, it's falling apart, and uh, I think that's where I went to the bathroom. I just saw that today on the back. I was like, I must have wet my, I must have wet my bed. Um, and <clears throat> what this is, she, she hand-did this. Um, it's these little pictures from vin, um, vignettes in Scripture. There's, there's one of um, the little boy who gives his fish and loaves to the disciple to be multiplied. There's one of Daniel and the lion's den. My middle name is Daniel. And I remember as a five-year-old boy laying in bed in Loveland and looking at that picture of Daniel. And that was my first reference to, you know, to this day when I think of Daniel and the lion's den, I think of the picture my mom drew and put on that blanket of mine. Now, why do I tell you that? Just because I want you to think of cute six-year-old Brent rolled up in his bed. I tell you that because... If you would have asked me back, back then, what's the Bible about? I would have said, well, there's Daniel in the lion's den. What else? Well, it's about David. And, oh, it's about Jesus. He came for us. And, it's, and that's how I would, what's the Bible about? That's how I would answer it. Because, and obviously it makes sense as a kid, but oftentimes as we go through life, we, if you were to ask, what's the Bible about? You'd go, well, there's that Jesus part. There's that King David part. And there's, you know what I mean by that? What I'm saying is oftentimes we lack what's called a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is one big narrative that makes sense of all the small narratives. If you've seen like Lord of the Rings, you, you might say, well, there are these hobbits and they live in the Shire and this is their life. Well, the, and then there's the elves and, they, and then there's the race of men. and this is Okay, but what's the, what's the big story about though? It's going to involve all those. But if you just know those little pieces and you don't know the meta-narrative, it's puzzling. You know what I mean by that? I wonder how many of you would say, that's kind of what the Bible's like for me. Like I know snippets I, and I love it. It's not that I'm not committed but I lack a meta-narrative to understand what's the big story. So what we're doing is we're jumping into a series called The Unseen Realm. 
What the Bible really teaches about the supernatural, I probably should have put world at the end. But I want us to walk away after about, we'll spend, I'm not sure how long we'll take on this, maybe seven weeks or so. And I want you to be able to say, oh, I get the meta-narrative of scripture. Like I get how all of these little pieces, I connected dots. Oh, and that's so helpful to be able to connect the dots to all these pieces that sometimes feel just like, is that just thrown in there? Like, you know, the author needed another, you know, three pages in Exodus. It was like, oh, what should I write about? And I'll just, you know, find, no. All of these ideas are deeply connected. And I want us to be able to see that. And so tonight, um, oh, and let me just mention to you, um, how many of you are familiar with the name Michael Heiser or the unseen realm, any of that content? Okay. I was just kind of curious to know how many of you might have some background. Um, Michael Heiser, he's a scholar. He's a professor. Um, he has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages from university of Wisconsin at Madison. Um, I first came in contact with him. The Bible software that I use, that I'll be showing tonight, he was the scholar in residence for Logos Bible software for like 15 years. So solid guy, solid evangelical Orthodox believer. And um, he, he wrote a book called The Unseen Realm, and I'm leveraging much of his uh, thought patterns and where he goes. Um, and I would encourage you, and in fact, I think I've got some of his books on the inside uh, of the bulletin on the bottom right, side, but um, I would say this, these are two, um, this is the Reader's Digest version, <laughs> Supernatural. We have it in our cafe and our bookstore, very accessible. If you're like, I love footnotes, <laughs> like I kind of want a little bit more academic, it's still accessible, but a little bit more academic, um, the unseen realm. I typically encourage people start with Supernatural, just to kind of get your mind around kind of where he's going with this, then jump into Unseen Realm if you say, I want to do a little bit more of a, of a deep dive. Um, so anyway, that's kind of some of the content. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring tonight, I'm going to introduce this whole concept of what is the divine council, who are the sons of God in the Old Testament, how do we to kind of just orient ourselves to the supernatural element uh, of the biblical author's worldview. In the um, future weeks, we're going to look at, over the next three weeks, three different divine human rebellions. Most Christians know about one. They know about Genesis 3. But usually we don't know about Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. These are other divine human rebellions. And I'll kind of set up next week. You can sort of think of it like... Um, this is a question that the author, uh, how he presents it. He says, if you were to ask an average Christian today, why is the world so messed up? They'd say, oh, that's the fall, Genesis 3. And then he says, well, if you would ask an ancient Israelite, or if you'd ask a first century Jew or a second temple Jew, why is the world so bad? They would, that's one answer they would give you. They would give you a three-legged stool. Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. And we often in the Western church have sort of, sort of filtered those out, and so we just miss things. We miss things as we read other places throughout the Bible. We, we're not able to make those dot connections because, whoa, 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 what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> because we oftentimes don't have the original context of this ancient, ancient world here. So let me get into it by saying this. Um, if you can go ahead and put the, uh, uh, my screen up on the, there we go. Can you guys see that? Is that large enough? Can you see it in the back? Do I need to make it larger? Okay, okay. Okay, question. Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? 
You should love the Lord. What's the first that's, that's don't do? You shall have no other gods before me, right? Here's, here's my question. Are the gods of the first commandment real personal beings? Do you think they are? Here's the, here's the command. You shall have no other, and I've got it highlighted there. Um, let's see if I can pull up the, it's, it's the word Elohim. In your bulletin tonight, and you might want to reference some of those, I gave you kind of an initial helpful vocabulary to start with. That's some words that we'll use, and some of them are foreign words, and we don't know them, but we'll, we'll over these next few weeks, and, and there'll probably be some other ones as well. But he says, you shall have, have no other Elohim. We translate that gods. You shall have no other Elohim, no other gods before me. The question that is presented to us is, do you believe those are real, personal beings behind this word, Elohim, behind gods. Um, see, oftentimes we, we tend to think, well, you know, the gods aren't real. They're not really these, you know, gods. That, that was, in fact, there, there are New Testament translations that when they translate talking about the gods of the Old Testament, they put them in scare quotes. You know, gods, like they're real. <laughs> There's no scare quotes in the original Greek. Okay, that's, that's, an, that's a translator's interpretation to say, well, these aren't real. In fact, you might have grown up hearing, don't have any gods before me, and then the immediate application is, do you love your car more than God? Do you love your possessions? More than... I've got news for you. The ancient biblical authors thought they were real. They believed these were real, spiritual, personal beings. Um, let me give you kind of an illustration. Um, suppose a wife overhears her husband talking on the phone and at first she's kind of suspicious. Um, but then she's pretty jealous cause it's a really, per- it's an intimate conversation and her jealousy builds and she's had enough. So she runs into the room, grabs the phone, listens. And to her surprise, there's no one there. It's just a dial tone, right? So here's my question. If God says things like this, um, I am the Lord your God, and you shall fear me. Um, you shall serve, and by my name you shall swear, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Yahweh your God in your midst, he's jealous. If they're not real, isn't that about the same as being upset that someone's talking to a dial tone on the phone? Do you get my point? Do you get where this is leading here? So, again, you might have been taught the gods of the nations, that they're not real beings. But again, biblical authors believed the gods were real and real personal beings. Now, we're Orthodox, Evangelical, Protestant. We believe all the boring, normal stuff of Trinity and Jesus is the Son of God, all that stuff. So don't get freaked out as we go through this, and you might hear some things that sound strange to you. Be patient, please. Okay. We're digging into an ancient book, ancient books, of people who had a radically different worldview than we oftentimes have as a default. Because if I'm honest with you, I am really comfortable with a largely um, materialistic universe. Meaning, okay, the God and devil and angels and demons, but nothing more than that. The biblical authors didn't think that way. They had a very different world view. 
Um, now, here's another question. Why is it that we as Christians, when we read the words G-O-D, okay, the, those letters put together in a word, when someone puts an S on the end of it, why do we get creeped out? Why does that make us uncomfortable to see an S at the end of G O and D? Well, because that sounds like polytheism, right? That sounds like a pantheon. You know, is that, is that what we have here? See, and here's, here's the problem. And this is just a result of our tradition. It's a result of English, uh, what's been handed down to us. When you hear the word God, G-O-D, if someone said, define that for me, what are some uh, uh, descriptors you would use? Throw some out. What are some things you'd say, this is the, de- define God for me. Omniscient. Omniscient. Most high. Supreme. Omnipotent. Sovereign, creator, right? Our mind immediately goes there, right? That's one of the problems. So there's about 6,200 translations of God in your Bible, okay? All of them come from that word in your uh, bulletin, Elohim, okay? Here's the problem. When an ancient person would use the word Elohim, they did not fill it with any of those descriptions, necessarily. It was a much broader word. We don't use the word God that way in our, in our culture, in our tradition. Um, the, the name Elohim was used to describe about a half dozen things. I'll tell you what they are. It's used to describe the God of Israel, Yahweh. It's used to describe God's small g. Uh, it's used to describe uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there are these um, beings called the Shadim. Shadim, uh, a shade uh, or Shadu was a territorial spiritual being, and it's called an Elohim. Um, the angel of the Lord, Genesis 35, is called an Elohim. Um, even this one, and this I'll, I'll go and I'll show you it because it's, it's the most kind of interesting. 1 Samuel 28 um, the, the disembodied human dead is called an Elohim. Okay? Let me kind of tell you the story. You, you might know the story. Do you know when um, uh, Saul, King Saul, do you remember Samuel was the prophet who was sort of like his advisor, right? Well, um, Samuel's dead. Saul has driven out all of the mediums for, from the land, which is to say people who you know, do necromancy, call up the dead and that sort of thing. Um, but he still knows where to find one. We oftentimes uh, think of it as the witch of Endor. It's probably more accurately the medium of Endor. So Saul disguises himself. He goes to the medium of Endor and he says, hey, I need you to call up someone from me. She doesn't know who he is. And she goes, okay, who is it? And he says, it's Samuel, the prophet, you know, who was in, you know, here in Israel. So she, we don't know what she does. She does something. And then she said, I, I see something. And he says, what do, you, what do you see? And what she sees startles her. She said, I see an Elohim coming up out of the ground. An Elohim, okay? And he says, what does he look like? And she describes it. He goes, yeah, that's, that's Samuel. Well, then she freaks out. She realizes it's Saul. She's like, oh, you're going to kill him. And he goes, no, 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 you're fine. I'm not going to kill you. But I need to talk to him. I need his advice, okay? Now, think about it. This is, this is the disembodied spirit of a dead human, and they are an Elohim, okay? Now, I guarantee you that no ancient Israelite thought their dead aunt was on the same level with Yahweh, the God of Israel, okay? But it's, it's and this is, I think, what's important for us to get. Elohim, it doesn't tell you what a thing is. 
It tells you where a thing resides. If you're disembodied, you're an Elohim in the ancient Hebrew mind. So if you have a dead loved one, you, you think about that person, to a Hebrew, they would be an Elohim because they're in the unseen realm. Okay? They're, they're disembodied, so therefore, by definition of that, they are an Elohim. Now, again, what makes us kind of so weirded out oftentimes is we always translate Elohim, almost, God. Could be big G, could be small g, could be a spirit, could be... <laughs> but do you see the problem? Because when you ask someone, how many gods are there? You go, well, there's one God. I'm, I'm an Orthodox believer. Our language is limited. Let me give you an English um, example. Um, if I say, do you know dad... Who am I talking about? Do you know dad? Oh, who's dad? So I need to clarify. <laughs> if I'm talking about my dad, then I'm my dad. I could be talking about your dad. I could be talking about the concept of a dad. Are you with me? The word dad does not have a specific set of attributes attached to it, right? Is he 6'1", like my dad? <laughs> or is he, the, you know... There's no specific set of attributes attached to dad. There's no specific set of attributes attached to Elohim. Okay? We attach a specific set of attributes to God. That's, that's our tradition. That's, that's our language. That's some of the disconnect. And that's why when you hear us talk about the gods, um, don't freak out. We're not polytheists. Okay? We still believe all the things. There is one supreme Elohim. Some people put it this way, God is an Elohim, but no Elohim, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim, but no Elohim is the God of Israel. You with me? Do we kind of have our minds wrapped around this whole language problem? Because we're going to jump into these texts, and don't be afraid. It's not going somewhere where you're thinking, this is heresy, okay? All right, <clears throat> so let's do this. Um, Okay, uh, let me bring up an objection first. What about the denial passages? Can you think of any passages in the Bible that say there is no God but Yahweh? I'll show you a couple. Okay. <clears throat> I am the Lord. Anytime you see the uh, Lord in all small caps, that's the English convention for translating Yahweh, the sacred covenant name. So I'll just use that. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no... God. Now, if you look down in the uh, blue column below, that will show you the, the Hebrew and the Hebrew transliteration of it, Elohim. So Yahweh is saying, I am Yahweh, and beside me, there's no Elohim. And you might go, well, wait a minute. How come you're always, so maybe they're, maybe they're not real. And he goes on later, there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Um, all the way verse down in... Um, Verse 21, we have repeat. And I, um, Isaiah 45, 46, 47, it's numerous times it, it has this denial um, statements. There is no other, and that's Elohim, there is no other Elohim besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Well, that seems problematic, Brent. <laughs> Which one is it? Are there other Elohim or are there not? Yes. This is... Um, 
this is one passage where uh, Babylon, this is Isaiah 47, 8. Babylon says this, I am the great Babylon, and there is no other city besides me. What? Babylon believes there's no other towns and no other cities? Yeah, this is not denial language. It's, it's a statement of incomparability. That's what's being used here. And again, it's used multiple other times. We also have Assyria saying the same thing. I'm Assyria and there's no other city besides me. It's not a denial statement of other cities. <laughs> this is a way of saying I'm the best. There's no one like me. When God says, there is no other Elohim like me, he's saying, I'm the... Remember the song we sang at the beginning? Uh, this is Amazing Grace. He said, he is the king of kings. He is the God of gods, is what is being stated here. Look at Psalm 97. He says, um, all worshipers of images... Now, that's an idol... An Elohim is different than an image that it resided in. And we'll probably get into this a little bit in a couple of weeks when we talk about even the, they had ceremonies for when they built an idol, how they would, what's called opening the mouth of it, inviting the Elohim to come live inside this. So they distinguish between idols and gods. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Now, and now he distinguishes. Worship him all you Elohim. So you Elohim, and we'll get into kind of the why of this and when did, how did they get there and what's going on. But the point is there are many Elohim, many spiritual beings, many gods, and some of them are in rebellion. In fact, the psalmist is calling them out. You should be worshiping Yahweh. He, he is the God of gods. So when God says these sorts of things, um, I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to think if he has a no. That was a different one, I think. Um, when when these statements are made, um, he is he is the god of gods, or other places. Uh, um, it's stated, uh, God is godder than God is greater than the gods of Egypt. Here's the question: Are they real gods? If not, that's like saying I'm I'm better than the. Marvel Universe characters. I'm more powerful than the Marvel. Well, of course I am. They don't even exist. They're fake. <laughs> Just for Yahweh to say, I am the God of gods. I'm the God of things that don't exist. I'm greater than things that don't exist. So am I. <laughs> so are you, right? That's not saying anything to say he is the God of all gods. He is the Elohim of all Elohim. He is different from all the other Elohim. We're still affirming the same things. There's a uniqueness to the God of Israel. Yahweh is utterly unique. He's the, all the words you use, sovereign, creator, um, omnipotent. Yes, all those things. But the way we get there is different than what we've oftentimes been uh, presented with or assumed from what we had in scripture. <clears throat> so now you might be saying, okay, I give up, there are other gods. <laughs> I'm not a polytheist, but I, okay, I recognize this different worldview. There are these other Elohim that we translate into English gods. You know, how did we get them? How, because they seem to be in rebellion against God. Yeah, that'll be like next week. 
and on the weeks to come. So we'll get there, but I wanna just start by presenting this idea of the worldview of the ancient author. It's really strange and it, for us. It might feel really different. So who, who are some of these Elohim? Well, let's start with God's divine counsel. This is something that, uh, again, we oftentimes don't necessarily get exposed to. But let me start here. Um, this is Psalm chapter 82. And it says, uh, Elohim, and again, you, you know which Elohim is talked about by context. It would be, again, like if I said my dad. Okay, that gives you context. So it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. And then we'll, we'll get on another week to what's going on in this passage. But down in verse 6, it says, I said, you are Elohim. You are gods. Sons of the Most High. Who's the Most High? It's, yeah, it's Yahweh. It's the God of Israel. And uh, week three, we're going to get to where this title Most High comes from. All of you. And again, we're not going to get into what all is going on in this, but, but do you see some of the language emerging? Sons of God, sons of the Most High, and again, some of this language you'll have in your, in your bulletin. This, this is a divine council. God is presented as a king, and he has an entourage. And not just an entourage, but he has agents, he has Elohim, who um, work for him. You're to think of it, again, the, the sons of God language is going to become important here. It's, it's like a family business. And it's going to have direct impact. You might be like, why, why are we studying about this? Well, in later weeks, you'll see this world somehow kind of mirrors our world, and there's implications for our future destiny. The New Testament writers loop in language of, does sons of God sound familiar to you from the New Testament? In the Old Testament, it's of Elohim only. Just, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Why is it in the New Testament ascribed to believers as sons of God? Um, so now, this, this, actually, let me go to one more here. Let me go to Job. Here we go. If I asked you this question, um, what, what was in existence before God created this earth and the universe? What existed? Before anything physical, what existed? Yeah, God in his space and yeah, his, his spiritual imagers. Listen to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, God's speaking to Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the who? Oh, there's that phrase again. The sons of God shouted for joy. These are the supernatural, divine, spiritual beings created by God prior to this creation. Now, you may have questions. Why the family language? Uh, why sons? Are they male and not female? <laughs> no. Um, here's the idea. In the ancient world, a, a royal court was set up a certain way. You would have a king. Guess who the king gave the best jobs to, the highest jobs? Family. His sons 
would have the high. One, their family, they're going to do a good job. Two, you can also keep your eye on them, make sure they're not going to overthrow, rebel, murder you, or something like that to try to get your job right. You want to keep an eye. Those were the ones who got the best jobs. Then beyond that, there were other being, uh, other members of, of a royal court who they, they would be messengers, that they would have other lower administrative duties. That's just how a royal court works. The biblical authors, when they speak of the unseen realm, that's exactly how they're framing it. Um, do this on your, on your piece of paper, if, if you would like, you don't have to, but this will be kind of helpful. Draw, draw a triangle with the long base at the bottom, point at the top, and then cut that triangle into three levels. So basically two lines in the middle of that triangle. At the top pinnacle, the top little triangle, you can write Yahweh. The middle level, you can write the word son, the phrase sons of God. And then the bottom level, you can write the word messenger. The two words that the Hebrew word messenger is malach, that's in your uh, notes there. The Greek one that's used in the New Testament is angelos. Anyone guess what we translate angelos into? Angel. Yeah, just means messenger. So a malach or an angelos um, and a son of God, it doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't tell you what a thing is, it tells you what a thing does. Um, there, there are words of, I'm going to use a big fancy philosophical word here, um, ontology. Ontology tells you what something is. You're a human, that's your ontology. Son of God doesn't tell you what the ontology is. Angel doesn't tell you what the ontology is. Spirit, that's a word of ontology. That, oh, it's a spirit, right? So there's a couple words that are used. This is a spirit, for instance. What they do, they're a son of God. Oh, they're at a certain, that's their duties. They carry out the things. They're a Moloch or an angelos. They're an angel. Oh, they're a lower level in this. Here's the point. There is structure and order and design to God's divine unseen family. It's not Keystone Cops. They're not just doing whatever they want. They're not just sitting. They're actively engaged in things. You ever wondered why Jesus said, pray this, God, may your will be done here as it is where? It's almost like he thought people were act or individuals were actively carrying out God's will there. That's kind of what it infers, doesn't it? <clears throat> That's what he has in mind. Let me give you some examples. You might say like, well, like what are they doing? <laughs> what kind of stuff? We get a couple glimpses in scripture. Let me, let me point out a couple to you. And these are, these are kind of interesting. Okay, I'll give you the backdrop of this before I, uh, before I get to it. Um, do you remember that King Ahab? He's the king of the, of the north. There's Israel and Judah. They split, remember, the uh, divided nation. And uh, Ahab, he's this horrible king, right? He's bad. Um, uh, he's an apostate. He doesn't worship Yahweh. He's got prophets of Baal and all this stuff. Well, he calls down to the king of the south, Jehoshaphat, and he says, hey, would you come up with me? I want to go up to Ramoth Gilead and take them over, fight them. Would you join me? And, you know, Jehoah, uh, he's kind of like, all right. I'll. And so he comes up, listens to it, and he goes, well, are you sure that we should do this? You know, God, and he goes, oh, all of my prophets have told me. So he calls out all the prophets of Baal. And um, King uh, Ahab says, am I going to win? And they're like, oh yeah, you're awesome. You're the best. You're, you're going you're gonna to destroy him. And um, 
King Jehoshaphat's kind of like, he's kind of nervous. He goes, like, do you have any prophets of, uh, of the God of Israel around here? And, and it's, uh, it's actually kind of humorous. Um, King Ahab says, well, yeah, there's one, uh, but I hate that guy because he never prophesies anything positive about me. His name is Micaiah. And he goes, well, can, can we just check with the prophet of Yahweh? And he goes, all right. So he goes and gets, Micaiah's in jail. <laughs> so he pulls Micaiah out. And he's like, am I going to win? And first he, he kind of just started showing, like, oh yeah, you're amazing. You're going to destroy me. Come on, I'm serious. Tell me if I'm going to win. Like, tell me what you see. By God's name, tell me what you see. This is what Micaiah says. Listen to this. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and look who's with him, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, listen, now he's asking this to his divine counsel. Here's the question. Who, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward, stood before Yahweh saying, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, yeah, that'll work. Go do it. <clears throat> do you see what's going on here? Is, is God like, is God going, man, I want to, it's time for Ahab to die, but I can't figure out how it should happen. I don't know how to, I don't know how to kill this guy. What should I do? Is he struggling? No. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a template for how God works with us. God is about participation. He could take care of it all himself. But he goes to his divine imagers, his divine counsel, and says, okay, it's, it's time for Ahab to go. He's bad dude. How should we do it? <laughs> what do you think? One person said, one Elohim said one, one said another. Now, if one Elohim would have stood up and had a, you know, a dumb idea, he would have said, now sit down, I'll get to you later. That's, you know, that's, that's not a good idea. But he hears his idea and he goes, yeah, that'll get the job done. It's participation. So this is showing us a little bit, again, of how God wants to work with us in our world. And we're going to get to that. We're gonna, because again, there are actually some really helpful clarifiers about what it means to be an imager of God, to image him in the world. Just like they image him in the unseen realm, we're called to image him in this world. And he wants participation. He wants your ideas. <laughs> Sometimes we often say, well, God, just tell me what to do. Why aren't you telling me? And he goes, oh, no, I want you to participate. I want you to talk about it. I want you to, think. I want you to come up with a good idea. Because I want participants. That's what it means to be a son of God, a daughter of God. You're not just mindlessly carrying out different things. Let me show you another passage here. <clears throat> this is Daniel chapter 7. Uh, many New Testament readers are more familiar with Daniel. And this is what we were told. Um, <clears throat> Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 9, as I looked, thrones, notice it's plural, thrones were placed. The ancient of days, we know who that is. That's the God of Israel, that's Yahweh. He took his seat. That means there are still other thrones. 
He was clothed, uh, his clothing was white as snow, his hair and his head was like pure wool. His throne, uh, fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. If you've read Ezekiel, it's the same description of this uh, throne with the wheels and all that sort of thing. It's like a, it's a, uh, it's like a mobile throne is the idea that you're supposed to get with it. Um, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. That's his divine counsel. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And what? The court sat in judgment. So that, wait a minute. That means these sons of God are actually involved in bringing about God's judgment on the earth. It says, and books were opened. And of course, books is, is, uh, is an ancient concept, the idea of nothing's, nothing's lost, everything's known completely. Let me show you another one here. Um, <clears throat> this is when, remember the four beasts in Daniel? This is Daniel uh, chapter four. The decision is made, okay, they're, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be defeated. This is interesting. Um, the judgment on the king... Nebuchadnezzar is that remember he's going to go crazy, he's going to eat grass and dew is going to be on his back and all that sort of thing. Look what verse 17 says. <clears throat> the sentence on Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's going to happen to him, is by the decree of what? The watchers. That's an interesting word. We haven't come across that one yet. By the decision of, uh, the decision by word of the holy ones. Holy ones is just another phrase for the watchers. It's, it's another phrase for the sons of God, for God's uh, royal court. But then a little bit later on, we read this. Um, then we're told, it is a decree by who? The Most High. Do you see what the author wants you to see? The Most High involved the sons of God in the decision. Probably a lot like with Ahab. What are we going to do? And the watchers the sons of God, the holy ones, whatever language we have for them, one of them had a good idea. And God said, let's go with that. God is involving, he has a divine counsel, and he involves them. And the ancient biblical writer assumed it. And we were even like, that's kind of weird. Yeah, it is kind of weird. But again, it's going to inform us a lot on what is our job in relationship to God. Um, yeah, we've got time. Let me do this. Um, <clears throat> here's one question that might immediately be coming to your mind. There are many sons of God. What worry do you might have if that's true? <laughs> anyone, uh, anyone know anything about uh, Jehovah's Witness theology? You know who Jesus is to them? He's Michael the archangel. He's just an angel. He's, he's a son of God. Now, you might, your mind might have been going to, wait a minute, what? I thought Jesus was the... In fact, what does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world that he gave. Wait a minute. His only begotten son? What? So did New Testament theology completely shift? Because the Old Testament's filled with sons of God. They're all over the place. They're running about, and we're going to be talking about them a little bit more. <clears throat> Well, let, let's go to the passage. This is really important to get our language down here. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word, I don't know if you can see it in, in the blue there, the Greek word is monogenes. 
You've got that word in your bulletin. It's down a little bit lower, monogenes. Here's the question. Does that mean only begotten son? Well, <clears throat> we used to think that if you have your, if you have your bulletin, um, so, so for instance, like the King James version, or some of our older translations have uh, translated only begotten because they assumed it came from, again, sorry for the nerd uh, grammar stuff here, but they assumed it came from two Greek words, manas and ganao. Manas means only, ganao means to give birth. So he's the one and only uh, begotten son. However, in the past hundred or so years, we've discovered a lot more uh, paleographic word, ancient Greek texts. And what we've realized is this word comes from manas alone and gene. Gene means unique. That's why modern translations will have the unique or one of a kind son. Let me give you just in case you're kind of thinking, well, that's a, that's a stretch. Go over to Hebrews chapter 11, remember the Faith Hall of Fame? And we read something. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is verse 17, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his monogenes son. Same word used there. Uh, If you can see that. Well, you can't see it. It's the exact same word, monogenes. Here's the question. Was Isaac... Abraham's only begotten son. He wasn't even his first, right? Was he his unique son? Yeah, because it, it goes on right afterwards. He was the son of the promise. He was supernaturally right, made because Sarah couldn't have kids. He was unique because he was the son of the promise and supernaturally provided. So this word can't mean only begotten. Monogenes cannot mean only begotten. It does mean only one, as my English teacher used to always say when I would write papers, I'd say, oh, this is very unique. And she said, Brent, that's what unique means. You don't need to say very. I always think of that. <laughs> but Jesus is very unique. Okay? He is utterly unique. He is the monogenes. Why is he unique? There are many sons of God. In fact, in John 10, if you remember, he's talking to uh, the religious leaders, and he says, in your own scriptures, it says, and he quotes Psalm 82, you are gods, not to the people, but he's saying, don't you, there is this category, your own scriptures, there is this category of supernatural beings, the sons of God. But then he takes it another step further and says, and I and the father are one, and he's in me, and I'm in it. So he's, why is he unique? He's unique, not just because he's the son of God, but because he is God. That is in him. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is Yahweh. So he's not confused with the Father. So he's saying, I'm not just one of the members of the council. I'm the Lord of the council. <laughs> That's, and and they, they're not confused. They say, let's arrest this guy. Right? So Jesus is utterly unique. You know, when we think about, let me read for us. Here we go. This is Paul writing about Jesus, the monogenes son of God, the one of a kind, the unique one. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. What that means is the first one to 
be resurrected. We're all waiting for that. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven, well, what things are in heaven? Sons of God, all those Elohim, right? the Moloch, the Angelos, the, all of those supernatural beings, Jesus created them. He created everything in heaven, or in the heavens, you could translate it, and on earth, things that are visible, that's us, that's God's human family, and things that are the unseen realm. (laughs) Jesus created the unseen realm, whether, and then look, he uses the language of these supernatural beings who are in rebellion, and we'll get to that week three, how did they get there and what happens? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of these supernatural beings that are ruling and, and, and running havoc in the world, it says, yeah, Jesus even created them, right? He is the king of kings. He is the God of gods. There is no one like Jesus. He is utterly unique. And the most amazing part <clears throat> is that we serve that God, okay, totally unique. He's, he's the Lord of hosts. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of the council. And yet we're told he stepped down, not with his entourage, <laughs> but he came as a baby. In weakness, frailty, he could be killed, and he was. And it's that reality that we celebrate every night when we take communion, And we're going to move into a time tonight of communion. And I would ask you in just a moment here to make your way. We have two tables up front. We have, I think, two tables in the back and a gluten-free in in the back middle. And if you would like to, during this song, make your way there, grab the elements, go back to your seat, take the elements on your own in your own time. And if you want to go to a different part of the room to do that, that is fine. But then I want you to engage in this song because you know what I love about this song? It's one that we sang earlier and it reminds us that the one we serve, he is the king of kings. And when you hear that, I want you to have these words of the ancient Hebrew going through your mind. He's the God of all the gods, incomparable, utterly incomparable. Go ahead and do that, sing, and then I'll dismiss us. Just a benediction as you go. Psalm 89, six through eight. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God, Yahweh of the hosts, Who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you? Amen. That's the God we serve. You guys, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for leaning in, engaging, and looking forward to doing this series with you. Love you guys. Have a great rest of your week.